Hello, my name is John Maidendorp. I'm one of the pastors here at Community Christian Reformed Church, and it's my privilege to lead you in this service of the Word today. In light of the COVID-19 pandemic, we're following the advice of health professionals and the regulations of the government, holding our services online and filming our services from our homes. Welcome to my house. Please know that we're praying for you every day. And together with you, we long for the day when this disease will no longer be a threat to us and we can worship together in person once again. Until then, we're happy to be joining you as you worship as households, and we praise God that we're able to connect in this way. Please join us in praying for those who are battling against this disease and caring for those who are affected by it, and pray for a swift end to this crisis so that we may see each other again soon. Our scripture reading for today comes from the book of Psalm, chapter 16, Psalm 16. As we prepare to hear God's word, let's come before him in prayer. O Lord our God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for these stories, these songs, these parables that teach us who you are as our God and who we are as your people. Lord, we pray that as we read your inspired words today and hear them preached, that you would send your Holy Spirit to us to open our eyes, open our ears, open our minds, and open our hearts to all that it is that you would have us see and hear and know and believe. Transform us more and more, we pray, into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Psalm 16, a miktam of David. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out their libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Reverend Kathy Smith, one of my seminary professors, has a wonderful book that I've been reading called Stilling the Storm, Worship and Congregational Leadership in Difficult Times. And I've been finding it wonderfully insightful for our current reality, even though it was written 15 years ago. One of the things that Reverend Smith talks about in this book, which is something that I've heard again and again in my own theological upbringing, is the importance of the Psalms for shaping Christian worship. 
The Psalms are the songbook of the church. The poems and lyrics contained in this longest book of the Bible carry the weight and breadth of human emotion, spanning the whole spectrum of feelings from anguish to joy, from despair to hope, from wrath to trust. In one psalm we read, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? And in another we read, you have taken my friends and my neighbors from me, darkness is my closest friend. In one psalm we read, Though my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will never forsake me. And in another we read, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In one psalm we read, Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. And in another we read, Blessed is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Truly, we see here the full scope of human sentiment, expressed in prayers and songs that the Holy Spirit inspired. Songs of faith and songs of doubt, songs of fear and songs of confidence, songs of anger and songs of forgiveness. God has given us a great gift in the book of Psalms, especially in times of crisis or in times of transition, in times when we cannot say with confidence all is right with the world or God is good all the time. Psalm 16, our passage for today, is unique even among the Psalms. And almost all biblical scholars recognize this in some way. Psalm 16 reads almost like a confession of faith. One scholar describes it as jarring. It's like when we read through the book of Psalms, we come across Psalm 16 and it, it catches us off guard. He said it's like flipping through a book of emotional poetry and coming across the Apostles' Creed. The psalmist here has developed this beautiful confession. There is only one God, the Lord, the God of Israel. I will serve no other. I am his and he is mine. And my whole body rejoices in him because he has shown me the path of life. The placement of Psalm 16 in the book of Psalms is also important because Psalms 13 through 16 form this kind of progression, this kind of journey, a unit that moves from lament to faith. If you have time this week, I'd encourage you to pray out loud through Psalms 13 through 16 so you can experience the progression that I'm talking about for yourselves. When we read these Psalms together, we see that it tells a kind of story. We journey from the question in Psalm 13, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? To the declaration at the end of Psalm 16, You fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. The power of Psalm 16's confession of faith is a comfort to many. And I've heard it used as a preaching text at quite a few funerals. My grandpa chose this psalm as the passage for his funeral. And Vic Vandermolen, who was a pastor and the clerk here in classes Huron, um, held Psalm 16 as kind of his life passage throughout his struggle with cancer and also had it preached at his funeral. The Apostle Peter uses it in his sermon on Pentecost to point to the reality of the resurrection of the dead. It's a powerful, powerful psalm. In the face of crisis, of despair, of death, Psalm 16 declares with faith and hope that the Lord is trustworthy, that our inheritance is sure, and that we will not be abandoned to the grave. The journey of the Psalms from lament to faith, from questioning to trust, is a journey that we're all on. 
but it's important that we not skip over the journey and skip to the end. We have such a problematic tendency in our culture, even in the church, to stay positive, optimistic, upbeat, confident, and we often skip over the difficult work of wrestling with dark emotions. My worship professor, John Whitfleet, in seminary used to joke that if churches have praise bands, they should also have lament bands, but I don't know any churches that do. To people who are struggling, it can often seem like the church has nothing to say that connects to their life. Even when people are faced with the specter of death, most people don't seem to know what to say other than vague encouragement and empty cliches. And in our current reality, of course, the actualities that we now face, sentimentality is not enough. And this raises the important question. When we read Psalm 16 as the end of the journey that starts with Psalm 13, the end of the journey from lament to faith, is Psalm 16 enough? What makes Psalm 16 anything more than empty words to a person that's suffering? Anything deeper than an escapist fantasy? Anything better than the vague promise of pie in the sky when you die by and by? What comfort is there in the declaration that the Lord is our inheritance when we see everything crumbling around us? Maybe it's easy for David to say, David is the king of Israel. He lives in a palace. He has everything he could ever need. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, he says. Sure, his boundary lines are the entire kingdom of Israel. His cup is the throne. His inheritance is the kingship. It's like a retired millionaire self-isolating in their cottage with a pantry full of imperishable foods, saying, I'm just trusting on God to get me through this crisis. Empty words. But it's not clear that David is the author of this psalm. The superscription of David that is at the beginning of the psalm might mean that David wrote it, or it might mean that it's written in a Davidic style. Sort of like when we say that something is a Shakespearean sonnet, it doesn't mean that it was written by William Shakespeare. My sister writes Shakespearean sonnets. That's not confusing to anybody. Nobody thinks that she's being deceptive or trying to pass off her work as the original writings of the great bard. It's just a specific way of writing poetry. And scholars actually have a really strong and compelling argument for questioning whether David wrote the psalm, because the psalm uses some really uncommon words that we don't find in other places in the Bible, which makes some scholars think that it was written by someone from the northern part of Israel, where David was from the southern part of Israel. And a number of scholars, because of the specific language used here in verses 5 and 6 about portion and lot and boundary lines and inheritance, a number of scholars make the educated guess that this psalm was probably written by a Levite, which should make us hear these words very differently than if they were written by a king in a palace. You see, the tribe of Levi was unique among the tribes of Israel. Of all the 12 tribes, Levi is not given a portion of land. They're not given a territory. A Levite has no boundary lines, no portion, no lot. And Levites, the Levites were consecrated 
as servants of the Lord, serving as priests and scribes and teachers of the law throughout the land of Israel, and especially in the temple in Jerusalem where they served as priests. The Levites lived off the tithes of the people, and so their well-being, their income, was based entirely on the faithfulness and piety of the entire population. They had no inheritance to pass on to their children other than their duty to teach people the law of God. So hear these words again from the perspective of a Levite who has no land, who has no steady income, whose well-being is based on the religious devotion of the people around him. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely, I have a delightful inheritance. A Levite with no land, no steady income, nothing to leave his children, says he has a delightful inheritance in the Lord. Sisters and brothers, if we've learned anything over this past month, it's that earthly things are fleeting. Jobs, homes, investments, family, health, even life itself, all of these things that we spend our whole lives pursuing, all of these things that we find our security in, all of it can be swept away in a moment. None of it is sure. None of it is certain. Nothing is secure. In that sense, we should all strive to be Levites. Hold our possessions loosely, as the church fathers say, knowing that nothing lasts forever. So that when the day comes that everything is stripped away from us and all that we have is God and nothing else, no income, no family, no health, no money, we can truly say the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. As I mentioned earlier, the Apostle Peter quotes this psalm in his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2 as a prophecy about the resurrection of Jesus. And this psalm is particularly appropriate for reminding us of the sure hope that we have in Christ's resurrection, the assurance of our own resurrection. It's easy for us to see it in verse 10 of our English translation. You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your faithful one see decay. But what is the nature of this resurrection? So often we tend to fall into this kind of sentimentality, even when it comes to the doctrine of resurrection. We fall into these empty words, like the resurrection is about your soul going to be with God in heaven when you die. But the Bible isn't really interested in disembodied souls. We aren't given much, if any, biblical teaching about what happens to a person's soul when they die. Our hope is not that we go to heaven when we die. Our hope that we confess is the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of our bodies. And the verses that precede verse 10 in this psalm make this abundantly clear. We miss it a little bit in our English translation because there's this cultural translation that has to happen too. 
and if you were to translate it exactly from the Hebrew to the English, it wouldn't really make much sense in English. It would raise more questions than answers because the peoples of the ancient Near East had this really complicated and specific system where they assigned a variety of mental and emotional functions to various organs in the body, kind of like we see with our eyes and hear with our ears. They didn't know about neurons and synapses and the things that we know about today. So a lot of the functions that we now understand as having their root, their seat in the brain, they assigned throughout the body. Thought came from the brain, but willpower came from the heart. And conscience, knowing what's right and wrong, came from the kidneys. Emotion came from the gut, from the intestines. Faith came from the liver. Strength came from a person's right hand. Life came from a person's blood. And so in the Hebrew, the second half of this psalm kind of sounds like a litany of organs. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my kidneys teach me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will never be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my liver is full of joy. My flesh also will rest in safety because you will not abandon me to Sheol, to the realm of the dead. You will not let your faithful one see the pit, the grave. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. You see, sisters and brothers, the full-bodied redemption that the doctrine of the resurrection promises us leads this psalmist to full-bodied praise. It's not just the heart and mind that praise the Lord, but the liver and the kidneys and the flesh. If the gospel has nothing to say to suffering bodies, it doesn't have much worth saying at all. But here's the truth. As the Anglican priest Tish Harrison Warren put it so eloquently this past week in her article in Christianity Today, the truest fact of the universe is an empty tomb. The truest fact of the universe is the empty tomb where we found ourselves last Sunday. The truest fact of the universe is that this story that we are in, whatever twists and turns it may take, ends in the resurrection of our bodies in life and in death, in times of prosperity and times of crisis, in times of stability and times of transition, in times of peace and times of conflict, our fate is bound up, united with the resurrected one. He is our portion and our cup. He has made our lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for us in these pleasant places within his grace and our inheritance, oh, our inheritance, is a delight. He has made known to us the path of life. And even in the face of death, we will trust in him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Please pray with me. O oh Lord our God, in the face of crisis, in the face of transition, 
in the face of uncertainty, even in the face of death. You give us an unshaking hope in the power that you have over all things. And so, oh Lord, we pray that even as we face our future, not knowing what it holds, we pray that you would fill us with a faith, with a faith that shares the certainty of this promise. That you will not abandon us to the grave. That you will not let your faithful ones see decay. Lord, you have made known to us the path of life, even in the face of death. And so we praise your name, both now and forevermore. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.